We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. It's fun to explore. You, you read things, and that's part of the fun of being right. online. This hour is brought to you by you saw it. Team Hockberg. You heard it. Visit their website, 56david.com. That's 56david.com. So I don't know how to set this up other than just say we are at the time of year where such things provide uh, content as needed. Well, no, I, I think you should set it up. I'll set it up. How about that? Dan brought this in yesterday to our meeting, and he was like, what do you think of this? And I said, well, what is it? He's like, oh, it's Craig Calcaterra. I'm like, all right, great. So he starts to read off basically a synopsis of what fandoms are like. And I said, well, why don't we do this on the air? Fair enough. Here's how Calcaterra sets it up. And this is in the Cup of Coffee newsletter. And if you are not a subscriber to the Cup of Coffee newsletter, which is about baseball, popular culture, politics, a little bit of everything, you're really missing out. Craig's a geek in a lot of different areas. Yeah, he's a a recovering lawyer and and a lovely guy. So this... This started because when he sent out a tweet and he said, I asked my readers to identify issues and implausibilities in the White Sox stadium renderings. And one of them said, the drawing shows a lot of people presumably interested in the White Sox. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, Tony La Russa uh, already out of the practice field. Yeah, Steve Greenberg tweeted that. I, I retweeted it. For people that that was basically the first person that Steve Greenberg yep. saw. He said instant, <sighs> instant Tony La Russa sighting. So there you go. Happy baseball season, Sox fans. Uh, and there was a response to that tweet that said, this had to have been a White Sox fan who said that. No one hates them more than their own fans. So this. I don't like our team. This was the starting point. And he said, I can't say I know a ton of White Sox fans. But that observation generally tracks. Back in the early hardball times days, I made a sport of trying to wind up fans of basically every team whenever I could. Sox fans are among the toughest to troll because there's nothing you can say that they haven't already thought or internalized. This inspired me to think back over my near constant interactions with the fan bases of each and every MLB team over the years. Can I just say that? He's 100% right about White oh, Sox fans. Absolutely. We'd rather curse the darkness than light a candle. Yeah, we're, it's fine. Like we, White Sox fans get it. They, they, they're in on the bit. He said, this is in the comments of my blogs, various fan forums, or social media. This has inspired me to summarize the highly subjective impressions I've developed of the fan bases of all 30 teams over the years. So he inoculates... Before anyone yells at me about this, yes, I know that not all blank fans are that way. Save that criticism. This is merely a sampling of genuine sentiment I've received or observed from fans of various teams at some point or another. I have been actively writing about baseball for 17 years. I have written more words than any baseball writer on the planet over those 17 years online in bloggy forums with comment sections, and I'm a social media addict. I've heard a thousand times more fan sentiment from more distinct fan bases than anyone going. So before you, let's save the Cubs one. 
Okay. You tell me. I've got I've got every team here. You give me a team. It's like this is a jukebox. You know my whole thing about, or maybe you don't. My whole thing about the the White Sox and the Cardinals and how the Cardinals think that we're some sort of kin. And I'm like, no, I I don't want to be associated with you. Like, oh, we both hate the Cubs. No, we don't. No, we don't. You tell me where to start. Start with the Cardinals, please. Cardinals fans. Among the most hilarious things going is how loudly some Cardinals fans will yell at you about how they never, ever called themselves the best fans in baseball. So it's unfair to mock them via sarcastic deployment of that moniker. My witches do not cite the deep magic to me. I was there when it was written. You and your Cardinals fans elders lapped that crap up until social media became a thing, Mm -hmm. and then you were forced to confront people who didn't much care for the sentiment. Personally, I just lean into it. Sort of like how the Yankees, Notre Dame, Chelsea, and the U.S. of A. still walk around acting like they're elite dynasties even after they objectively are not anymore. Make the critics explain why they're better fans or why you're not the best. Once they start doing that, that the absurdity of the exercise will become apparent. They'll be the ones looking foolish. Just don't lie, man. That's pretty great. (laughs) Very spot on. Guys, fire away. If you got if you got a fandom you want to hear. We're should saving we the, the Cubs. Should we do the White Sox one? Or we want to save that one too? Well, he kind of already did. Or has that already been done? Okay. Well, but I'm I'm happy to I wasn't sure if he had more. I'm happy to do it in full. Yeah, let's do let's do the whole White Sox thing. As noted above, they know and have internalized all possible criticisms of their team before you can offer them. There's some quite understandable Cubs little brother syndrome going on as well, but it rarely comes off as toxic in my experience. I like that. That's all he had that's to say a, about that's that. That's about right. Um, Astros. Astros fans? Because they are a bunch of Astros. I don't want to rehash every argument from the sign-stealing scandal, but at some point someone needs to sit Astros fans down and explain to them that but someone else did something wrong, too, does, <laughs> does not mean that the Astros did not do anything wrong. Because I'd say that argument has been either explicitly or implicitly deployed in 96% of all interactions I've had with Houston fans about sign-stealing over the past four years. Seriously, if you put Astros fans in charge of a police department and they employed the same logic about crime as they do the sign-stealing, they would tell you that Jeffrey Dahmer should never have been arrested because they never arrested the Zodiac Killer. Okay. <laughs> um, Pirates fans. Pirates fans. They not make the list. If Mariners fans could use therapy for dealing with some erratic and uneven parenting, Pirates fans should all be placed in foster care to get them away from what they've been experiencing for so damn long. If it weren't for the imaginary friends they've created, the Steelers and Penguins, they might not have made it through. As for the purpose of the exercise, I can't recall dealing with any obnoxious Pirates fans ever. Same. And I'm not even sure what sort of form that would take. The last time I encountered a Sid Bream was safe piece of trash talk (laughs) was on a prodigy message board. The artist prodigy? It's probably a format of some kind, Oh, how about the Brewers? The Brewers. 
takes me some time to scroll. So he's uh, scrolling right up now. With me. I am scrolling. This is part of Cubs. the radio. Here it is. They're pretty well-adjusted fans. Probably a function of being in Milwaukee, which is one of the more well-adjusted cities in my experience. I know there's some Chicago inferiority complex stuff afoot there, but the people I've met from Milwaukee don't seem phased about it and appreciate their city for the largely unoverrun and relatively less gentrified place it is. My experience with Brewers fans is similar. Many would love if the team spent more when they're in contention or on the cusp of it, but people generally don't lose their minds about it. That was until Craig Council left. Yeah, that's, Then yeah, there yeah, was a whole thing. Yeah, yeah, then, and, then you're defacing public property. Yeah. In, a, in, a, in the most Midwest way. In the most yeah. Milwaukee. Gosh darn you. Wisconsin type way. Um, okay. Let's We're going to spray paint ass on your sign <laughs> yeah because yeah, take that because you're ass you're ass sir um let's go with some of the big boys let's go yankees yankees the biggest drama queens going when things are going well it's the yankees universe the evil empire no one can stop us and no one dare try when things even go slightly suboptimally, however, they would have you believe they're suffering through the worst stretch of baseball imaginable, and no one's woes can compare. The micro-agita is pretty extreme, too. Like, there's no fan base who comes within 100 light years of Yankees fans when it comes to nitpicking insignificant batting order decisions or choices about who should be the 26th man on the roster. All of that being said... I rather like Yankees fans based on what I've seen from them. However, I simply think it would be completely exhausting to be one. Red Sox. For years, the signature trait I observed involved Red Sox fans continuing to act as though they were cursed victims, despite the fact that they'd won one, then two, then three, and then four World Series titles. When you add in the unprecedented success the Patriots have had, along with championships and pretty consistently great play from the Celtics and Bruins, there's never been a more egregious case of rich people crying poor in all of sports history. Facts. This, thankfully, has died down over the past several years. Indeed, these days, Red Sox fans are a fairly baseline, happy when they're good, cranky when they're bad lot. Indeed, these days, I tend to think more about Boston media reactions because there's so many Red Sox media folks online. That crowd tends to be the most provincial bunch of marks imaginable. Like when Ricky Henderson dies one day, there will absolutely be headlines that read former Boston Red Sox left fielder Ricky Henderson has passed. Wow. Um, before we get to the Cubs, what about the Rays? The Rays. Because, I, I mean, that's a... Got to track down some fans first. Well, right? that, that's what I'm wondering. I'm, I'm wondering how Craig's going to... Rays fans. I haven't encountered a great deal of vocal Rays fans online over the years. For a time, there were some people involved in the Rays' blogging world who, because not everyone knew who their fifth best pitching prospect was, took it as a sign of massive disrespect. But that was like a decade ago. They still do get mad when you note that the Rays, more than any other team, like to raise banners for pretty modest accomplishments. But in their defense, we do that specifically in order to make them mad. All right, now give me the Cubs. Wait, can we do... There's one that I think we should do first, the Tigers. Okay. Why the Tigers? Yeah. Some people on the Twitch and the really? Twitter or okay. Twitch and the text yeah, line. You know, we got an it. old friend going over and there. And yeah, Why we got Benetti going true. over there. See what he's getting into. It's true. Fairly baseline in my experience. Tigers fans never got too high when the team was great and haven't gotten too low when they've been dog crap. I suppose their experience with years and years of great Red Wings teams tempered their reactions to the former and their experience with the Lions, at least until very recently, tempered the latter. 
I I dig uh, Tigers fans. I love their ballpark. I love downtown Detroit. It's f- fun times. Like this is actually like you may have missed the boat, but it wouldn't be a terrible time to invest in Detroit. Hmm. By the way, oh, in the in the in the actual city I th- of Detroit. I think you missed that trade. You probably missed it, but maybe there were people not. buying up like whole blocks of um, houses. That's for, getting for ready nothing. to happen in Cleveland too. Just so you know. All right, so now. Your Chicago Cubs. Things used to be simple with Cubs fans. They never expected much, and their expectations were almost always met. The World Series victory and the couple of years of success on either side of that scrambled them good. Older Cubs fans say people over 40 have always kept their heads about them, but some of the younger ones who came of baseball fan age between 2015 and 2020 have been a bit insufferable on social media in certain Cubs online spaces. I mean, dudes, I agree with you that this or that front office move or Ricketts decision stinks, but you don't get to play the this is the worst it's ever been card if you don't even know who Mike Quaddy was. That's pretty good. To be aggrieved but not be aggrieved. Not- There's, I've, I've heard Cubs fans that I know talk about this, about how a segment of the fan base really just kind of became the worst after they won the World Series. Well, people kind of figured that that was going to happen. That for the group, the, the I would say 35, maybe even 30-plus group, that when they won, there was relief. There was the, the catharsis of this. I've been waiting for this for a really long time. And then there was some, man, I'm about to puff my chest out. I'm going to be walking in these streets talking that ish. And then when they didn't keep, like, when the players didn't go back to back to back, when Chris Bryant looked like he hit a ceiling and they didn't know what to do, I think that's, you know, it's usually unfair to say that of young people. As if what they did in 2016 wasn't really, really hard. Or historic. Or historic, right. Well, this is a 309. Bernstein's such a crybaby about the Cardinals. Listen, asshat. First of all, these aren't my opinions. I'm reading Craig Calcaterra's opinions. You want my opinion about Cardinals fans? Racist, corn-pone, goober jackwagons. If that's being a crybaby, kiss my ass. Anyone else have a, have a request? No, I think we're good. The, the Cubs thing should be the way to cap it off. That and you calling Cardinals fans racist. Good. Now, when we come back, you asked this question. I think it's a really good one. Does Jason Kelsey, Travis, excuse me, Travis Kelsey, understand what he's doing? Yeah. And if if you're of a certain age, somewhere around where Dan and I are, you'll probably appreciate this next segment. We'll share with you next on The Score. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Bernstein and Holmes. Middays 10 to 2. 
on Sports Radio 670 The Score, 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 score and 670thescore.com in Odyssey Station. You gotta fight for your right to party! This riff does things for people of a certain age. And I remember when this song first appeared, and I will say my first thought was, oh, no, what is this? And then once you realized what they were doing, you sort of understood, oh. It also a- kicks ass. It sure does, but there's there's a lot more to it. And believe me, I, I went to college with some people that didn't quite understand in much the same way Travis Kelsey may not what the subtext well, well, is. Well, well, that's what I'm wondering. I don't think from the way that he uses it and the thing is is that it does fit into a sports realm. Like the, the idea of you have to fight for your right to party you have to fight all the way to a championship to be able to celebrate it. So there is something that that I go, huh, it does make a lot of sense. But the question that I have is, do you think he understands? Do you think that he's in on the bit? And I don't think he is. I don't think that, that he understands the way the Beastie Boys felt about that song in that era. Of their career. I think it should be whiteboarded that the Beastie Boys are, were, and remaining Beastie Boys are very true, musicians. genuine musicians. They're multi instrumentalists. They've, they have crossed genres they multiple ca- times. And they came out of the punk scene. They emerged from a, a very real music scene. That sure, there was sort of a, a, a countercultural nihilism to it and an anarchism to it, but they used that to fuel everything they did. And the fact that they had the first hip hop album to make the Billboard 200 is generally how they're remembered. But and it went to prove some of their point, too, of look at all of these incredible rappers that have already started to stake a claim but watch us because we're white watch what happens watch we're gonna we're gonna kind of just mess around with this like we're just gonna play around with this genre and watch what ends up happening and they become really really famous and to a certain degree really really rich it was a bit and it was a bit if you don't believe us, listen to the Beastie Boys themselves talk about it. And they they reference a Russell in this clip, and that is Russell Simmons, who was their manager at that time. Russell was like, you're going back on tour, and you're going to make a lot of money, and you're going to be happy rock stars. All right, Russell, whatever you say. Kick it! I mean, he was the manager. So if he's like, you're going out on tour, well, then that's what you do. We didn't really question it so much. I mean, we felt like we had to be out there doing this, but we weren't really mature enough to be able to express that we started to not like our own songs, which is a really feeling. 
Yauk was the first one to start showing signs of not wanting to be there. I mean, it's not like we weren't having fun as friends. It's just the show started to become just that, a show. A gimmick. I mean, we were all tired. We missed our families. We missed being home. We missed things like just going to the deli to get a sandwich. We missed being the people we used to be. All the dumb we were saying, and the go-go cage, and the beer, and the in the box, and the whole thing was just getting embarrassing. We were burning out. In a flash, Beastie Boys went from being a funny tipsy guy with the lampshade on his head to the ugly drunk dude that people were trying to get out of their apartment. They got trapped in their own bit. Mm -hmm. The beer, the women in the cages. And when you have somebody sort of glorifying what they were making fun of, it results in the questions that we're asking. Yeah. The, the, and you know what's cool? And you brought this up in the meeting. I bet Taylor has seen that documentary. Of course. She knows. Which I questioned because of her age, and maybe no. I'm wrong. Maybe I'm incorrect about that. How old is she? Is she late 30s or mid-30s? 33, right? I don't know. But I bet she's probably seen that documentary. 34. And I, wonder, I don't think Travis has. Or he's just, like, to me, okay, so let's get super big with this. The Beastie Boys were kind of making a point about bro culture. And here we are, 37 years later, bro culture has again adopted. Co-opted. Yeah. And, and, and taken what they were doing and been like, no, this is exactly what they were talking about. They were talking about fighting for your right to party. And one only needs to look at what happens with the subsequent albums that the beastie boys paul's boutique is the farthest thing away creatively from what they did on license to ill check your like all of the other things that came after it kind of let you understand that they were doing a bit and if you even watch mike d and ad rock now like talk about it i mean one they look like dan but <laughs> Especially Ad Rock. Like, he, I was sitting watching him talk, and I was like, Jesus, Dan. I can't get away from him. Even when I'm in Colorado, I can't get away from Dan because I'm watching this Beastie Boys documentary. They, they're so, they're almost embarrassed by what happened with License to Ill. Yeah, the 708 asked a good question. Are you saying it was a bit from the beginning, or they kind of grew tired of it, having become a bit, and then they matured out of it? Like, weren't they kind of serious about the mood and the attitude of the songs when they first wrote them? No. 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 They, they, was, they, they took a piece of a, of a thing, of an edge of the lifestyle, and kind of, and, the, and with their manager, who recognized it, this, a lot of this was Russell Simmons like, wow, we're sitting on a gold mine here if and, they just do this. And this, this has happened to m multiple famous white artists. This is what happened at the beginning of Pink's career, where they were like, hey, you have a great voice. You could probably like do like kind of a pop vibe, but it's kind of R&B. 
and get the party started. And they, well, that's like they pushed her into a. You make me sick is the, what I'm thinking of. Is okay. They pushed her into this kind of. Wait, is she white or is she black? I didn't know why they changed her name. Her actual give. I thought her name was going to be like Linda Kucharski or something, and it's not. Her name is Alicia Moore. Like that, her her actual name sounds like a fake name. Well, the story behind how she became pink is morphed and changed. Like I've heard her tell the story that her name was pink because she was white and certain things would right. You know, no, what I mean? get it. I get it. Like there, but that's kind of the mythology on it has changed since she's evolved. But that's the box that she was put in by her record company is you're the cool white chick who does R and B. But maybe you're not white, and we're gonna kind of put we're gonna these lean videos into that. Yep. together that make you a little bit more racially ambiguous. So yeah, the record companies sometimes do that. the The Beastie Boys were a punk band; they were literally a punk band first, and their musicianship ended up being widely respected later on when they did other stuff where you're actually seeing like. Think about the song Sabotage, for example. Like, think of them wailing on their instruments on that song. And MCA was this artist. Like, he was doing Andy Kaufman stuff. When they they got, you know, famous and after you get to, like, check your head. So, yeah, it was a bit from the beginning. And then they were like, this is awesome. We're getting all this money and we're partying and we're doing all this stuff. And then they were like, this sucks because this is not the audience that we want to be associated with. Robert from Naperville says they dice manned themselves. hundred percent. Sa- same thing happened to Andrew Silverstein, who had in his early stand, I had a character called the dice man. That was this amalgam of all of, uh, of toxic masculinity from New York and he got trapped in it and be- and became For 40 years and became that character. It was just a character. And, and then you have to live being that. Yep. But the Beastie Boys decided that they weren't. And I it I would love, like, I honestly think that Travis Kelsey's um connection with hip hop black culture to me is fascinating. I would love to sit with him and talk about this. Like, do you get it or do you not get it? I'm not sure because if you if you are around Travis Kelsey, when you talk about code switching, note his speech pattern. He's great at it. Note his speech pattern. That I forgot which comedian said, it, like, a, if you put a, a black guy in a room full of white guys, he's not going to emerge talking any differently. But if you put the white guy in a room full of black guys, the white guy is going to come outside. There's there there's all all these sort of sociocultural experiments that can be done. But he's, he, I mean, Joseph Nurkic is another guy like that, by the way. He is. And and I'm okay with that. Like, And, and I think it would be fun to sit down with Travis and be like, so I know that you're kind of leaning into the bro thing, but you realize that the guys that you got the bro thing from were kind of making fun of the bros? Maybe he does. That's what I'm wondering. I don't think so. It, it, it doesn't off, seem like it. It comes off like he doesn't get it, but maybe maybe he's he's even more skilled from a communication standpoint than I know. Maybe he's like, well, obviously, beer-chugging bros 
love it when I do beer chugging bro stuff. The thing is, the broiest bro is his teammate. Mahomes is a bro. Like, <laughs> he's a broy McBroerton. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. But I bet you that that will come up in their parade. When's the parade? Tomorrow, I think. It, it, he'll he'll do the bit. He did the. Someone said that they expect Taylor and Travis to break up because he finally showed her the ick, and it was him doing the Viva Las Vegas thing, and someone cut to her while he was doing the Viva Las Vegas thing, and it was like the first time when she's like, "Oh no, oh I'm I'm in too deep." I'm in too deep with all of this. But as a Beastie Boy fan, I would have loved to, I'd love to pick his brain and see if, do you get it, Travis, or do you get it now? Does it change things for you? They were making, kind of making fun of the thing that you're doing. I wonder, and I wonder if the Beastie Boys, if the, the remaining Beastie Boys, would they, if asked by the Chiefs to be at the parade tomorrow, would I they? I don't know. I don't, th- I, I I don't think no. that they would. My guess is probably not. But can we get you to put your Kango on and get a gold chain going and go out there and scream with Travis Kelsey, you got to fight for your right to party? I don't suspect that they uh, would. I, I would. I would, I would kind of hope not. I would hope not, yeah, too. I would be disappointed if the if They're like they dinner theater guys it. now. Like, I don't have time for that. Well, they're old. Yeah. They go to bed early now. I don't know if they go to bed early. They might be listening to music or stuff. Like, they're still musicians. But Speaks doesn't go to bed early, does he? I don't know. Probably not, right? Because he's out gigging and stuff. Not gigging with, like, frogs. He'll do that, too. But maybe he, he might, is. He might. What if somebody's a musician and enjoys lovely fresh frog legs and, and you get to say i'm going gigging and no one yeah, knows no one which under, one you mean right you could be either and you and every time you walk out you have a trident with you no matter what a frog gig it's a little poseidon trident that you can carry around with. they you. did that for two movies and they were both terrible when we return i want to uh, aquaman talk bad. about something that a, a second one's a, so bad a, a sports tragedy that i believe is unparalleled i really do and I want to make sure I'm talking about it sensitively and not doing this as like some sort of listicle or some sort of Darren Rovell style commodification. But I do think that there is a, a reasonable discussion to be had about the the tragic death of Kelvin Kiptum. We'll do that next on The Score. Bernstein and Holmes, your midday destination for Chicago sports talk. On Sports Radio 670 The Score and 670thescore.com. In Odyssey Station. Kip Toom in bib number two. Arms swaying back and forth, pumping his chest. Two hours, 34 seconds. A record, a world record in Chicago. It has been smashed. Kenya's Kelvin Tiptoom wins the 45th running of the Bank of America Chicago Marathon in an unofficial world record time. That's Josh Liss on the call on our sister station, WBBM News Radio. Oh, that was like, we have like, of WBBM News Radio on the score. And it was a. Uh, when it came across, I just saw it almost right before kickoff 
of the Super Bowl when I saw the news that Kelvin Kiptum and his coach had died in a car crash in Kenya. He was age 24. He was the world record holder. And if you listen to this show, you heard the executive race director of the Bank of America Chicago Marathon, Kerry Pinkowski, in here before the race talking about him, before the race, talking as excitedly as I've ever heard him talk about a runner, about his, his pride and joy and seeing who he had scouted and what he saw in just the way he moves his feet and what he could mean. He was the best hope for the inevitable breaking of the two-hour mark. It was going to happen. It was believed in the running world that Kelvin Kipton was going to run the first sub-two-hour marathon. And he set the world record in Chicago. It was a huge deal. He also was, was described as just a, a, a prince of a person. You saw him hugging fans after he had unofficially broken the record. And just the reaction that he was having and sharing his joy with everyone. This was a, it was a major, major blow to the sport. I'm looking at some of the stories, like the BBC wrote a story and there were pictures of the car and the car apparently went to a ditch and went 60 meters and then ended up hitting a tree. And you hear what people in Kenya are saying about him, that this this death there hits as hard as any major figure in American sports. Like, I remember getting off the plane in Miami four years ago when I was covering the Super Bowl to text messages, voicemails of Kobe Bryant dying. And there's a similarity as far as impact in in the country of Kenya for Kelvin Kiptum, that that this was the, the bright, shining light. And now it's been extinguished and people are having a hard time with it. But the difference between somebody who had been retired from the game or or even somebody, you know, Roberto Clemente, who had his full career, or you had 3,000 hits, or, or like you say, there have been all kinds of tragic sports deaths. The closest that, that I could come to even knowing about was Ernie Davis. From who Syracuse. won the Heisman Trophy in 1961, was the first overall pick of the 1962 NFL draft, and died of leukemia without ever playing in a game. When you didn't, we didn't know what the, the unlimited upside of somebody like that, that could have been one of the greatest of all time. We know that Len Bias was very likely going to be a great basketball player when he died after the, the night he was drafted that summer. But there's been nothing like this. Not a world record holder who was on the vanguard of pushing the human, the human achievement in the sport. The only comparison, the, the, the only thing, the more I thought about this, I, the only name that I can think of who is to this day considered, even as short as his career was, who is considered the all-time best to ever do what he did, Jimi Hendrix, that was understood to be the greatest rock guitarist in the world. He died at 27. Part of the 27 club. As the greatest rock guitarist in the world. And to this day, every time they convene the greatest guitarist to get their vote, their opinions, that across the board, he's, anytime Rolling Stone has done it or Guitar World magazine, he, that it's Hendrix. Even now, 
that's the, the the closest that I can come to to this horrible story about Calvin Kipton. I I don't even know if it's if it's respectful for us to even make comparisons. That, that's why I I said before we did this that I didn't I didn't want this to be sort of a crass valuation. Well, but just to get my head around or to help try to illustrate what it means to to a country to running. When you look at what, what what running has meant, the ancient connection between the marathon right. being called the marathon because somebody ran, was it to Athens from marathon, mm-hmm. and and the, the pushing what the human body can do, he was changing that. The, he, he was going to eventually achieve one of the greatest human achievements in history, a sub-two-hour minute, and he was going, unless he got hurt, like that shaving of 34 it. seconds from the previous marathon to the Chicago marathon. That's he did that in what five six months, and that was Chicago was his third ever marathon. And shaving 30 seconds off of a marathon time is, especially when you're at that level, is not easy. You're watching him run, and like the smoothness of it. I think I even I even I may have even texted Layla because Layla was doing the television coverage on NBC five. And and I was like, this if you were to set the your regular weekend warrior and say, you're someone who's you in decent shape, and say, we're gonna set the treadmill to 13 miles an hour. <laughs> You're gonna hit the back wall. We're gonna set it. Yeah. It was the 13. You're gonna run thir- how long before you would go flying off of that thing? Meanwhile, this guy's running through the streets. Like there were stories. I don't know if any of them ever were confirmed, but there were stories of like the pacers being absolutely gassed because of the pace at which he was running. Well, he was running most of the last half of the race by himself. There was no one around him. It was just a pace car. And he just, he smoked everyone that was on the field. It's absolutely tragic. And, and it's, it's, when I saw it, I was just like, oh no, it was like the, the first thing that I thought. And I thought about like how, like you said, Carrie was in here. And even after we were done with our segment, he was like, no, guys, seriously, this guy, like this guy right here is special. It's not just what he's going to do here in the Chicago Marathon. It's what he's capable of doing in for running itself. Like he's going to change the sport. And for him to not be here is, is it's a tragedy. When we come back, Ron Hughley, the show. Is it show or the show? I always, I'm, I'm always curious whether or not he gets the definite article. We can just call him Ron. We can, and we will, because he is part of the Chiefs Nation via his work with Arrowhead Pride. We can ask him about the Beastie Boys thing. Whether or not he thinks that Travis, Travis gets, it. gets it. Yeah. Okay. We can ask him about that. All right. We will do that, among other things, while we talk about further Super Bowl reaction and what it means that 
the Kansas City Chiefs are a genuine NFL championship dynasty. Next on The Score. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.